Our sermon passage for this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should bring the, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Well, royalty has been in the news recently. Prince Harry of England, Abby, if I get any of this wrong, just let me know. Prince Harry of England has proposed, and soon Meghan Markle will be a part of the royal family of Great Britain. I saw this week that Queen Elizabeth's reign over that country has lasted longer than any other monarch in British history. So this coming February, Elizabeth will have reigned for 66 years, roughly twice as long as I've been alive. Uh, even in the U.S., though, we do talk about royalty. We talk about dynasties. So the Bush dynasty of the, of the 90s and 2000s, the political dynasty. The, the Ford dynasty that pioneered the automobile. Even sports dynasties like the Yankees in baseball and the Patriots in football. The Kennedys, the Rockefellers, the Kardashians. We all understand what it means to be a part of a dynasty. But the one fundamental thing that all those dynasties share in common is that overall, over time, they diminish in influence, right? They lose power. So the Ford company, the Ford family, now owns only about 2% of the company. It's still over a billion dollars. Uh, the Patriots' best days are behind them. I was hoping Peter would be here to hear that, but he's in nursery. Uh, dynasties are powerful for a little while, but they don't last forever. 
Well, in this season of Advent, which means coming, the season of anticipation of the coming of Christ, both his first coming 2,000 years ago and his second coming still in the future, we've been looking at some previews of the first coming of Christ in the Old Testament. That is the part of the Bible before Jesus comes on the scene. So last week we saw that he came to be the promised offspring of Genesis 3 who would crush Satan's head. And today we fast forward a good number of centuries to 2 Samuel chapter 7, which Stan has just read for us. And here we see God making a covenant with King David, a promise that David's throne, his dynasty, unlike the dynasties of the world, would last forever. So this morning from this passage, let's see two things. First, let's see two building projects, two building projects. And then second, let's see the final fulfillment. So first, two building projects. So 2 Samuel is a book that depicts the rise of David to be the king of Israel after the failed reign of King Saul. And here in chapter 7, it seems like he's already been king for quite some time. He has rest from his enemies in verse 1. And one of the significant signs of the establishment of David's kingdom is that he has a house. So back in chapter 4, a king named Hiram had sent builders and carpenters and cedar wood in order to construct for David a magnificent palace. And in chapter 4, verse 12, right after that palace is built, we see something about David. We see that David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom. So King David's reign is in a good spot here. He's established. He has this magnificent palace. He lives in Jerusalem. But now in chapter 7, he sits back and kind of notices something's a little off. Something's off kilter. Something's not quite right with this picture. I mean, he has this amazing palace of cedar, uh, but the ark of God is still in a, a, a tent. The the portable tent it had occupied since the exodus from Egypt years before. And so as David ponders this, just a light bulb goes off in his head and gets this idea. So he, he calls his, his confidant and his prophet friend Nathan there in verse 2, and he says, Nathan, I've got a plan. I'm going to build a temple of cedar for the ark of God. I mean, I'm established here in my palace. Now God needs a house. It's only appropriate. Uh, Nathan, off the top of his head, agrees. It sounds like a good plan. And so David starts to commence his building project. And we see in 1 Kings 18 that this was not an arrogant desire. This is not a sinful desire in David's heart. It was good. Uh, he wanted to honor God with a temple. Uh, the temple was this magnificent place for God to dwell with his people. But then we come to verse 4, and we see God has a totally different idea. So Nathan goes home, and he brushes his teeth and gets ready for bed. A little bit of license there with the text. Um, but then this word of God comes to him. And he says there in verse 6, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? It sounds like God's a little peeved, but he's not. He's, he's not upset with David here. He's just merely pointing out that this, is, this has just been never something he's demanded from his people. So in verses 6 and 7, he goes through uh, the, the history of Israel. And he says, throughout his deliverance from slavery to Egypt, he's dwelled with his traveling people in a traveling tent. He's been their nomadic God with the nomadic people. He appeared in a pillar of flame and a pillar of fire and cloud to lead them through the wilderness. He never required them to build him a more permanent dwelling. 
Other parts of scripture show this even more clearly. The, the reason David or God denies David's request. It's not because God is opposed to a temple per se. But to build a temple requires a sense of stability in a kingdom. Establishment, peace, reigning. And even though we see in verse 1 that this is a time of peace, frankly the bulk of David's reign has been one of warfare marked by struggle. And so the time for the, as one commentator says, the time for the building of the temple had not yet come. The rest of peace was not yet secured. And so God says a gentle no to David's building project. But he's got more in store in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. God goes all the way back to 1 Samuel, to the beginning of David's call to the kingship, and he reminds David of what happened. He took David from following sheep to leading a nation. He had made a lowly shepherd into a great prince. Uh, From David's earliest days of fending off, attacking bears and lions as this shepherd in the wilderness, all the way to his famous battle with Goliath, and then his months of flight from Saul who sought to kill him, God reminds him, I was with you. And now that your throne is established, I have cut off your enemies. I have brought a measure of peace and success. God's not done. Go ahead into the second part of verse 9. He says, he now kind of transitions a little bit from what he has done to what he will do. And he says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Verse 11, I will give you rest from your enemies. For David, this would have been a familiar language because it's covenant language. It's the language echoing all the way back from Genesis 12 when God had made a promise to Abraham. He had told Abraham he would make for him what? A great name. He would bless the world through him. And here God is graciously recommitting to his covenant. And he's saying, David, that blessing, that covenant promise I promised Abraham is yours as well. I will bless your throne. And then there at the end of verse 11, God proposes his building project. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. It's it's such a cool play on words. David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you one. God's so merciful and gracious. He's going to build David a house, and he doesn't mean another palace, though. Can you imagine a palace God would have built for David? That would have been awesome. No, he's talking about David's dynasty, David's descendants, David's throne. He will build David an everlasting dynasty. David's descendants will always sit on the throne. And before we go on, church, do you see how emphatic God makes his work, his activity here? I will make, I will appoint, I will plant, I will give rest, I will make a house. He's saying, it's my work. As good as your intentions are, David, my building project is going to take priority here. I'm the one who will establish your destiny, your dynasty. And after all, throughout this, God calls Israel his people. He is their king. David's called a prince. He's 
anything, he's a second in command. God is king of his people. He owns them. In verse 12, we see that even when David dies, God makes the point, I'm still going to be around. I'm still going to be reigning. So church, let's, let's take from this and remember who God is. He is not in debt to us. He is not in need of us. He didn't need you to come to church this morning to feel wanted and loved. God is completely self-sustaining, completely happy and content in himself. I think sometimes we can fall into thinking that somehow God is dependent on us, that he created us because he needed us, that somehow he was lonely or bored with just Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Quite the opposite. God is always completely complete in himself. He doesn't need us. He's made us because he loves us and he's merciful to us and he knows the joy of his glory and he wants us to get in on it. Isn't that so gracious of God? He wants us to get in on what it means to be made in the image of God, to have fellowship with him and with one another. Well, God not only makes this building project announcement, he kind of gives the blueprint for how it will unfold in verse 12. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So David wouldn't be the one to build God's house. But after him would come other kings, most notably his son Solomon, who would reign during a time of immense peace and immense wealth. And he, God says, he would be the one to build God's temple. And we see later in, in Chronicles that after he's done, the glory of God in a cloud, a fearsome cloud, descends on the temple. And God is in his house. But even in their weakness and sin, David's descendants would stumble and fall. They would be called to live obediently before the Lord. But we see there in verse 15 that even in their weakness and sin, God's steadfast love would not depart from them. David's house would be made sure forever. That's the covenant we see here in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, it's, it's brought to a head, it's culminated, it's summarized in verse 16. Your throne shall be established forever. So God responds to David's building project with one of his own. He makes a promise to David, and he says, I will continue to build your dynasty, and I will do that forever. One author says, God must first of all build a man's house before the man can build God's house. And so David must have been reminded of God's power and intention to keep his covenant and bless his people. And what we won't see it today, we didn't read it, but in the second half of this chapter, David just realizes God's amazing promise of grace and he overflows in response of gratitude. The whole structure of 2 Samuel 7 is one of gospel structure. God's grace responded to with our thanksgiving. We see two building projects. Only one contractor gets the job. God's plan's gonna get done. He will get a house built for his glorious presence, but that will happen on his terms. He will bless David, and he'll bless David's throne for his own glory. And what, what a privilege for David, this man after God's own heart. 
But friends, there's a problem. In the midst of all this, there's a big problem. So let's go on and see our second and final point this morning, the final fulfillment. Look there in verse 14. In the midst of all these grand promises, God just showering his grace on David, promising this eternal throne. He speaks of David's son, Solomon, and he says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. If you keep reading, you'll see that. So Solomon comes to power. He worships God. He builds this glorious temple. And then towards the end of his life, he falls away. He marries foreign women. He begins to worship their false gods. He starts to disobey the God of Israel. And then it gets worse, and we see his son Rehoboam come to the throne, who's just foolish and stupid. And as a result of his reign, Israel is just ripped in two, split into two kingdoms. And we see king after king come to the throne, the, bulk, the vast majority of them not in any way wanting to follow the God of David. And then it gets worse, and we see these two kingdoms later led into exile and captured by enemy forces. And 400 years after this promise from God to David, we see David's dynasty utterly disintegrate. It's not around anymore. See, the problem with God's covenant here is that David's descendants were not obedient. They were rebellious. So how would this covenant be fulfilled? How would someone come to David's throne and sit there forever? Would God remain faithful? Solomon fell. Rehoboam rebelled. Complete peace was not realized or obtained. An eternal throne was just a pipe dream at this point. One author says, the posterity of David could only last forever by running out in a person who lives forever. So who could that be? David died who would be this ultimate king who would rule on David's eternal throne? Or remember what Joe read for us earlier from Luke 1. The, the ties here are just so amazing, church. Centuries later in Israel, a, a virgin named Mary is flabbergasted to see an angel appear to her. The angel Gabriel greets her tells her not to be afraid, and then he gives a prophecy of a son who would be miraculously born from her virgin womb. And listen to the words of his prophecy. He says that this son will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. To David, in 2 Samuel 7, God had promised a great name. And now to Mary, he promises a son whose name would be great. To David, he had promised an offspring who would be to God like a son. And now to Mary, he promises the very son of the Most High. To David, he had promised an eternal throne. And now to Mary, he promises a throne with no end. Who would this ultimate king be? Who would take the throne and reign forever? The angel gives the answer in Luke 131. You shall call his name Jesus, 
Jesus would be the perfect David, the perfect Solomon, the perfect king. Jesus, the son of David, would come to be the ultimate ruler, the fulfillment of all God's promises, the prince of peace. What was it Brad read for us earlier from Isaiah 9, this beautiful description of a king coming to reign? This is Jesus, friends. He's, he's the one who will come and the government will be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Listen, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to finally establish it. Church, what we celebrate at Advent is that Jesus came not only to be the promised Savior we saw last week, but to be the promised King. He came to sit on David's throne to bring to God's people eternal peace under his rule. I mean, that's, that's our dream for our ruler, isn't it? Someone who will bring eternal peace. I'm not sure if you've grown tired of Christmas music yet. It's already been playing in stores and on the radio for several weeks. Uh, one song that you may have heard already is John Lennon's Happy Xmas, War is Over. You may recall the lyrics. Uh, he sings, And so Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let, let's hope it's a good one without any fear. And in the background, these heavenly children's voices sing, War is over if you want it. War is over now. Church, that song is so true. It hits on such a true nerve in our hearts. We yearn for peace. For no more disturbance from violent men like God promises here in 2 Samuel 7. It's a need in our hearts. We want it. We desperately want to be at rest. We need war to be over. Not just war overseas, military conflicts, but war in our families, war in our hearts, war in our church. We want peace. But unlike Lenin, we know we won't find that ultimate peace in the banishment of religion or in pacifism or in racial reconciliation, as good and as needed as that is. No, we see here in 2 Samuel 7 that true, final, eternal peace will only be found in submission to God's king. Especially this time of year, the world will tell us that true peace can be found within us. It can be found by peeling back the onion layers of our soul and finding who we are. It will be found in submitting to no one but ourselves and what our passions dictate, what our lusts require. Friends, nothing is further from the truth. True peace is found not in full-out liberty, but in submission to the king of peace. If we look for that peace like Joe prayed for earlier, if we look for that peace in other people or in government, we will look forever and ever and ever in vain. Only the true king can bring true peace. Only Jesus' government will bring rest. David failed. He couldn't bring it fully. Solomon couldn't either. Rehoboam failed. So did many others. And you can look at the so-and-so, like, quote-unquote, kings of our day. 
They haven't found any answers either. Lenin was revered, and he could hope, but he never found the peace. Neither did Mandela or Gandhi or whoever you want to name. War still isn't over, even if we want it to be. But God promised a king who would come in the line of David and bring peace. And church, here's the kicker. The amazing thing about this king is how he would accomplish that peace. He wouldn't come with a scepter to crush his enemies. He wouldn't come and set up a system of justice and vengeance. No, God's king would come not to rule, but to serve. He would come not by ascending a throne, but by leaving one. By by setting aside his privileges as God, by making himself as nothing, like we see in Philippians chapter 2. King Jesus came as a humble servant. And tying this back to 2 Samuel 7, like the kings of old, he committed no iniquity. He didn't need God's discipline, like Solomon, like Rehoboam but he was still stricken. The stripes of God's discipline still still fell on his back. Our king came to lay down his life for ugly sinners so that in him we could know the promise of this chapter, that the steadfast love of God will never leave us. Our king took on himself all our sin, that sin that separated us from God. He took that on the cross. He bore God's judgment for us so that for eternity we can reign with him as kings. Just just discipline your heart to burst with love for this kind of king. He isn't a king we expected. He wasn't the king we were looking for. He's like nothing we've seen before and like nothing we'll see again. He's the king who saves by dying. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you're a rebel against this king. You've decided to live like you're your own king. We all have. You know, we can often think about church as a place where good people come to remind ourselves that we're good people. We're not. In fact, the reason we gather every Sunday is to remind ourselves that we're the worst of sinners, but for this king. We're all rebels against him, yet because of what he's done, we've been changed. Once a rebel, now a saint. Once an enemy, now a son. Friend, you can be too. In Christ, your sins can be forgiven and you can belong to God's eternal kingdom. Won't you turn and place your trust in Christ and what he has done to bear your sin on himself? By his wounds, you can be healed. And church, can you see how King Jesus' throne is the culmination of God's covenant promise to David? King Jesus' throne lasts forever. He's the son of David. He is God's ultimate king who died for his people and then rose again in power to save. He is God's ultimate king. As far as the curse is found, he reigns. 
2,000 years ago, he came to put to death the devil's plan, to die our death for us. But one day, friends, he's not coming as a suffering servant anymore. He's coming as a reigning king. And we will worship him forever as that king. Church, one of the things we see throughout 2 Samuel 7 is this word eternal. God repeatedly promising an eternal throne, one without end. And in Christ, this eternal king, we see that promise fulfilled. And just think about that, friends. Think about that, church family. King Jesus' reign is never going to end. It's never going to stop. It's never going to diminish. There is never a day when King Jesus is not reigning. Breaking news could come out today as we leave church announcing some catastrophic political event, some seismic shift in the governments of this world, but there will never ever be breaking news that Jesus has lost his power, that he no longer rules. His throne will last forever. And then Christian, if that's true, that changes everything. If, if you're struggling this morning, if that's true, that reminds you that Jesus is coming back to end all struggle. If you're suffering this morning, this reminds you that your king is coming back and he suffered for you and he's coming to end all injustice for you. If you're tempted this morning, church, that reminds you that your king has power over sin that is at work in you now and will be finally completed when he comes back. If you're fearful this morning, you know who's on the throne. So Christian, I don't want you to take, really take a to-do away from this sermon, but to just rest. Final peace is coming. But because Christ has come and risen again, you have true peace now. You have true rest now, whatever your circumstances. I don't know about you, but some of the most godly, at-peace Christians I've ever met are those who have suffered the most because they know Jesus is coming back. So sit and consider your Savior. Consider the one who bore your sins on himself. Consider the one who rose again in victory. Consider the king who's promised you something. He's coming back. And coming back to bring perfect peace to our broken lives, to this broken world. I'll leave the final word to one of the greatest pastor writers in history, the 19th century British pastor J.C. Ryle, who once reflected on this truth like this. He said, Before Christ's glorious kingdom, the empires of this world shall one day go down and pass away. They shall all come to nothing one day. But before Jesus, every knee shall one day bow. The true Christian should often dwell on this glorious promise and take comfort in its contents. He has no cause to be ashamed of his master. Poor and despised as he may often be for the gospel's sake, he may feel assured that he is on the conquering side. Yet a little time, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. For that blessed day, let us patiently wait and watch and pray. Now is the time for carrying the cross. 
and for fellowship with Christ's sufferings. But the day draws near when Christ shall take his great power and reign, and when all who have served him faithfully shall exchange a cross for a crown. Let's pray. Jesus, how awesome are you? Baby, born in a no-account town, in a no-account stable, to be the king of the world. Lord, forgive us for doubting your faithfulness when we see that extended thousands of years from Genesis to 2 Samuel to Luke, and now even to us. You will always keep your promises. Your king will always reign. And Lord, we thank you that you didn't come the first time to rule and punish sin, but you came the first time to be punished for our sin. Lord, we pray that while there's still time, if there's someone here who has not repented and turned, that while that door is still open, they would turn to you and know that they're on the conquering side. And Lord, for the rest of us, help us to long for pray for and eagerly wait for your coming back. When you come back, not as a suffering servant, but as a reigning king. Give us joy now as we sing joy to the world, a, a hymn that does not only look back to your first coming, but looks back or looks forward eagerly to your next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.